I don't know if you've been to see the uh, movie that was out recently called Napoleon. You can guess what it's about. It's about Napoleon. It's a, a fascinating movie uh, about a fascinating man. And Napoleon, towards the end of his life, uh, wrote some things uh, as he was being more reflective about Jesus Christ. And this is what he said about Jesus. Napoleon wrote, I know men, and I tell you, Jesus Christ was not a man. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires. But on what? Upon sheer force. Jesus Christ alone founded his empire upon words of love. And at this hour, millions of men will die for him. And those amazing words, that's what Napoleon recognized and something we're going to see today, the power of the words of Jesus. Well, so far in his gospel, Matthew uh, has shown us who Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah. That is, he's God's promised king. And his words and his deeds prove that. And yet, despite the overwhelming evidence for who Jesus is, he's God's king, he has been met with great opposition. The accusation, if you think back two weeks ago, the accusation against Jesus at this point in Matthew's gospel is that his ministry is being conducted in the power of the devil. That is the conclusion that the religious leaders have come to about Jesus and his ministry. But as we come to chapter 13, the opposition that Jesus has been facing in the last few chapters, it kind of fades into the background a wee bit. And Jesus begins to paint a picture, a beautiful picture of who he is and of what his kingdom is like. And so my prayer for you this morning and for myself is that you will leave here this morning thinking more about Jesus and that as we go through this passage, you'll get to see who he is and what his kingdom is like. But if we're going to do that, uh, we need God's help, don't we? So let's pray and let's ask God to help us as we come to his word. Uh, Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to meet as your people, to gather and to worship and, and encounter you. And Lord, we thank you for your word that it's living and active. Lord, we pray that as we look at Matthew chapter 13, uh, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that you would show us Jesus, for we ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen. Well, in Matthew chapter 13, uh, Jesus speaks words. He speaks lots of words. And that might seem like a very obvious thing uh, to say this morning, but have a look uh, with me. Matthew 13, verses 1 to 3. It says, That same day Jesus went out of the house. He sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered round him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, a farmer went out to sow his seed. The passage begins with Jesus speaking words to a large crowd that's gathered uh, around him, and he's sitting in a boat. But will you notice that also the passage ends with Jesus speaking words over the page, verse 34. It says, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything uh, to them without using a parable, and so was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables, I will speak things hidden since the creation of the world. In the parable that we're going to look at this morning, in chapter 13, Jesus also begins to explain who he is, and he uses an image. He compares himself to a farmer carrying and sowing seed in his field. We know that Jesus identifies himself as the sower because he says so in verse 37. Verse 37, Jesus answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. 
Uh, and we also know that from verse 19, the seed that this farmer is sowing are the words of Jesus. Uh, words, words, words. This is a chapter that is full of the words of Jesus. And just to be clear, uh, we're not saying that Jesus has a few words for the crowd. You know, a, a celebrity at one of those events kind of walks past and the reporter comes up to him and says, do you have a few words for your fans? Uh, Jesus doesn't just have a few words for the crowd. No, Jesus describes himself as the one who has come to establish God's kingdom through his words. If you're taking headings this morning, uh, that's our first heading. The words of Jesus establish the kingdom. The words of Jesus establish the kingdom. Uh, this whole idea that words establish a kingdom, it's actually an idea that runs right through uh, the whole of the Bible. So back in the beginning, in Genesis, when there was nothing, God spoke, and the word of God brought creation into being. There was no other word in Genesis 1. There was no other voice kind of making suggestions about how to do things. There was one word. There was one voice, and it spoke. And that was the word of a king. It was a word that brought about a kingdom. God's words established his rule over everything that he had made. And in Matthew 13, here is Jesus who is bringing in God's kingdom. He is the promised one who has come to reestablish the kingdom. Well, how do you establish a kingdom if you're God? You speak. You speak words. And what does Jesus do here? Jesus speaks words because that's how the kingdom is established, not by fighting a battle like Napoleon, not by doing miracles, but by the word of a king. And so back in Genesis, we get this beautiful account of God speaking. Uh, he speaks a word, he establishes a kingdom, but then into that perfect kingdom came a rival word, a rival voice. Uh, the word of God put uh, God on the throne, it established his kingdom, but then this rival word came along and sought to kick God off his throne. And the rival voice said to humanity, you know, you can be in charge instead of God. The rival word challenged the word of God. And we know what happened, don't we? Tragically, humanity chose to listen to that rival word. We rejected God. We listened to the rival voice. And as a result, the world, which was under God's blessing and rule, came under God's curse. The kingdom was lost. And our world became, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Our world became a world of thorns, a world of hard ground where ultimately things would wither and die. And at this point in the story of the Bible, you might imagine that God would say to his creation, look, you've rejected my word, and therefore there will be no more words from me. I will hand you over to your rival word, and you can wither and die because you've rejected me, the king. And that would be fair enough, wouldn't it? After all, he is the great king, and we've rejected his word. But that's not what happens. Uh, he doesn't do that. In, in fact, he continues to speak his word into this world. And here is Jesus, the king, who comes into a world that has listened to the rival word, and yet he graciously speaks words of life. Because how else will the rival word be silenced? And how else will God's kingdom be established unless the true word is heard again? And this is the glorious simplicity of this passage and, and the coming of the kingdom. 
that the kingdom comes with the words of the king. That is how the kingdom is established. As Jesus said these words, and as he created that image of a sower going out to sow the seed of words, there was a great expectation in Jesus' time that the kingdom of God was going to come. Uh, The great hope was that God himself would come to Israel and that Israel would be reborn and reestablished. And we know that in Jesus' day, people were really confused about the manner of the coming of the kingdom. There were those who thought that the kingdom would come through violence or through political power or through force. And here is Jesus who says, no, the kingdom is established. The kingdom comes in the beautiful simplicity of a sower who walks out into his field and sows the seed of his words. And that might sound so simple to you this morning. And yet so many people find it hard to believe. We live in a world where people think that real change comes by having lots of money or lots of power or lots of influence. And as Christians, we can fall into that way of thinking too, can't we? We sometimes say, you know, if if the church had more financial resources or more political influence up at Stormont, then, you know, the kingdom would come in our day. But the parable of the sower is a rebuke to false beliefs about what the the kingdom coming looks like. The words of Jesus are what establish the kingdom. Maybe you think, well, Stuart, that's an interesting thing to say, but so what? What practical difference does it make in my life that Jesus' words establish his kingdom? Well, let me ask you this question. As you look at the world in which we live, and as you pray for God's kingdom to come, is your confidence this simple? That God's kingdom will be established through the words that Jesus spoke. That your family will be built up through this word. That this church will be sustained by this word. That this community will be changed by this word. That our nation can and only will be changed and reborn by the words of the sower. The only way God's kingdom will be built in our day is through the words of Jesus, because it's the words of Jesus that establish the kingdom. Someone recently asked me uh, what my hobbies were, and it kind of stumped me a little bit. I don't really have hobbies, having a toddler, but then I thought about it, and uh, I realized that one of my hobbies, what I spend most of my time doing, is playing with a thing called Duplo. Duplo is a bit like Lego, and uh, it really is quite fun. It's surprising how fun it can be, but imagine that my love of Duplo grew over time, Uh, And I decided I was going to create Duplo land so that everyone could come and enjoy uh, the pleasures of Duplo. But imagine that I created Duplo land and I built it out of Play-Doh. Well, you would come and you would say, well, that doesn't make sense. Why not call it Play-Doh land? Because you've made it out of Play-Doh. You build something out of what it's made of. And if you want to see the kingdom of God established, the only thing that will build it are the words of Jesus. Some people say, no, no, you know, we'll, we'll build a kingdom by doing this thing or this thing or this thing. But if it's not the word of God, then it's not the kingdom that we're building. If the words of Jesus are not being sown, then the kingdom is not being grown. Why is that the case? Well, it's because the words of Jesus are what establish the kingdom. 
Well, secondly, uh, our second heading for this morning, the words of Jesus establish the kingdom, but then the words of Jesus achieve their purpose. The words of Jesus achieve their purpose. Look at verse 4 through to 9. As he, the farmer, was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. In verses four to nine, Jesus tells a story about a farmer who goes out to sow a seed. Some of the seed falls on the path and is gobbled up by the birds, verse four. Some of the seed falls on rocky ground and it withers, verse five and six. Other seed falls on thorny ground and it is choked, verse seven. While some seed falls on good soil and it grows, verse eight. And on first reading of those verses, it would be easy, wouldn't it, to assume that Jesus' words don't actually achieve their purpose. It seems like three quarters of the seed is wasted. And yet that would be to misunderstand the parable. Uh, What farmer do you know who intentionally goes out and wastes his seed? Uh, It would be a complete waste of money, wouldn't it? Uh, And one thing I know about farmers is they don't like to waste money. Now, every single seed, every word that Jesus speaks achieves its purpose. Uh, That is not true in our case. Uh, We know that our words don't always achieve the purpose that we have for them. Ask any parent of young children, they'll tell you that simply saying, put your shoes on, doesn't always have the intended effect. Uh, Our words don't always achieve their purpose, but Jesus' words always achieve their purpose. None of the seed here is wasted. None of Jesus' words are wasted. So then the question is, what was Jesus' purpose in speaking in the way he did? And that is actually the very question, can you see verse 10, that the disciples come to Jesus and ask him. Verse 10, the disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? And in verse 11, Jesus gives his answer. He said, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more. Uh, They will have an abundance, and whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. Uh, There's a popular idea out there that Jesus uses parables, a bit like a preacher uses illustrations, to try and make things uh, clear or simple. But that's not why Jesus used parables. Look at verse 11 again. Jesus spoke in parables to give secrets to his disciples, but to keep secrets from others. Or verse 12, Jesus says that he speaks in parables to give things to his disciples, but to take things from others. He says the same thing in verse 13. He speaks in parables so that some people will see, but not get it, and other people will hear it, but not understand. In other words, Jesus speaks in parables to reveal things to some people and to conceal things from other people. I wonder this morning, does that shock you? That Jesus spoke to reveal things, but also to conceal things from people. That's not what we were taught at Sunday school. 
But according to Jesus, his parables, they function a bit like a bright light. What does a bright light do? A bright light can reveal things to you. And a bright light can also blind you. So think of full beam in your car when you're driving on the road. The bright light can show you what's in front of you. But if you're driving the other way, then the bright light has the effect of blinding you. And that is what Jesus' parables are like. They reveal things to his followers, but they blind his enemies. That was the purpose of his parables. That was the purpose of why he spoke. But there's more. Because in verse 14, uh, Jesus goes on to quote from a very famous passage in Isaiah chapter 6. Have a look at verse 14. Jesus says, in them, the parables, is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, where God said to Isaiah, you will be ever hearing but never understanding, you'll be ever seeing but never perceiving, for this people's heart have become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, they have closed their eyes. Other words, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Uh, Isaiah the prophet, if you don't know, uh, was sent to preach to uh, Israel, God's people, but God told Isaiah that actually an incredible time of judgment was going to come upon them because of their sin. God basically told Isaiah that he was to go and preach his heart out and that nobody would listen to a word he said. But God also said to Isaiah that when his judgment comes and fell in Israel, then and only then would salvation come to Israel. And here is Jesus who comes with words that fulfill that prophecy to Isaiah. Maybe as you hear that, you think, well, why did he speak like that? Why did he speak in such a way to reveal things to some, but to blind other people? Why did he come to fulfill Isaiah's ministry? Surely when the religious leaders were so hostile towards him, and the people's thinking was so twisted, why didn't he just make it clear to them? Why did Jesus start using parables that he knew would further confuse them? He knew that they were angry to the point of actually plotting his death. So what was his purpose in speaking in this way? Why did he speak in parables so that their ears would hear, that their ears would not hear, their, their eyes wouldn't see, and their hearts would be closed, and that they would be blinded to God's truth? Why would he do that? Why would he speak like that? Well, we need to remember where we are in the big story of salvation. Uh, we're in between the birth of Jesus and the death of Jesus. Uh, Je Jesus knew what God had told Isaiah. Do you remember that salvation would come when judgment fell in Israel? Uh, Jesus knew what the, the prophet Isaiah had been told, and now he comes to fulfill that prophecy. Jesus, the great sower, knows that as he sows his seed, as he speaks his words, there's first going to be a period of judgment, and then out of that judgment will come salvation. You see, the rejection of the religious leaders is actually going to be used by God to bring judgment in Israel. Because Jesus' words, judgment is going to fall in Israel. And yet here is the glorious thing, even though Jesus' words are going to cause judgment to fall in Israel, it is not going to fall upon Israel. The judgment of God is going to fall upon Jesus himself on the cross. 
Jesus knew as he spoke that for the kingdom to come, for salvation to come, God's judgment must fall in Israel. Sin must be paid for. But Jesus says to his disciples, the reason I'm speaking in parables is because these men who hate me must hate me more. These leaders who reject me must reject me more, even to the point of killing me on a cross. Because in the hands of my Father, they are God's instruments to bring God's judgment upon me. And it is only as God's judgment falls upon me that salvation will come to you. Isn't that a stunning truth to think about this morning? That Jesus spoke in parables, Christian, for you. They hated him, and he spoke in parables to ensure that they would send him to the cross. He spoke in parables because he loved you, and he was going to give his life up on the cross for you. That was the purpose of his words. And the words of Jesus always achieve their purpose. None of the farmer's seed was wasted, and Jesus' words are never wasted. So the words of Jesus establish the kingdom. The words of Jesus achieve their purpose. But finally, as we finish today, the words of Jesus produce a miraculous harvest. I want you to see this, verses 18 to 23. Let's read them together. Jesus said, listen then, to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand that the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart, this is the seed that is sown along the path. The seed falling on the rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they've no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution come because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke the word and make it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word, understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 100, 60, or 30 times what was sown. In verses 18 to 23, Jesus explains the meaning of the parable, and he describes the rejection of the kingdom by the flesh, the world, and the devil. He tells his disciples, basically, look, there's a reason why people don't accept me as the king. It's because of the world and all of its distractions. It's because of the flesh and all of its temptations. And it's because of the devil and his lies. And yet the focus of the parable is not on these three soils. It's actually on the final soil of verse 23. This would be a great one uh, to remember. The seed falling on good soil, verse 23, refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. In verse 23, Jesus is talking about a miraculous harvest. Uh, Bible commentators, uh, they tell us that a great harvest, a really great harvest in Jesus' day was sixfold. So when Jesus uses these kind of numbers, a hundredfold in verse 23, he is describing a miracle. It is a miraculous harvest. And it's miraculous really in two ways. It's miraculous that some people respond given the natural state of our hearts. And it's miraculous because of the sheer size of the harvest. 
The miracle of this story is that some people respond. And the question that we have to ask this morning is, who are they? If I asked you today, do you think that your heart is hard towards God? Have you listened to the voice that's all about me, all about doing what I want, about living for myself this week? Have you listened to that voice this week? Well, I think all of us, if we're being honest, would confess, yeah, my heart is hard. I don't always listen to God. I find myself listening to that rival word. Or maybe sometimes you get excited about the Bible, about the Word of God, and you think, this is wonderful. But then suffering comes, and you think, I'm not, I'm not so sure about this. We avoid suffering, and we find that our hearts are shallow. Or perhaps sometimes we go, you know, this Jesus stuff, it's exciting, but then there's all this stuff that I want. I want more stuff. I want a bigger house. I want a better job. I want more money. I want this stuff. That's what I really, really want. And our hearts are full of thorns. If I'm being honest, I think my heart is hard. I think my heart is like the rocky ground. I think my heart is like the thorny place. And it's true of all of us. All of our hearts are so susceptible to the world, the flesh, and the devil. So who on earth are these people who hear the word and produce a crop? Who are they? Well, I'll tell you who they are. Verse 11, Jesus said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. And verse 16, but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. They're not the good ones. They're not the clever ones. They're not the rich ones. They're not the nice ones. They're not the good listeners or the gifted ones. They're the ones who come to Jesus acknowledging the true state of their hearts and acknowledging him as the rightful king of their lives. And that's what you find as you come to Jesus. As you come to Jesus, what he does is he breaks up the hard ground. He pulls out the thorns from your heart. It only happens when we humbly come to him and we ask him to do it for us. We cannot change our hearts by ourselves. And so my question to you this morning is not, are you a good person or do you pay attention in church or are you a good listener? My question to you this morning is this, do you want Jesus to so work in your heart that he will break the hardness? If you come to him humbly, then he says the secret is revealed to you. I don't think this parable is meant to make us run around asking if we're the good soil or if we're the bad soil. I can solve it for you this morning. I know what soil all of us are. All of us are hard ground. All of us by nature listen to the rival word rather than to the words of Jesus. But of course, the whole reason that Jesus came was because of the hardness of our hearts, because they were full of thorns. And here is Jesus who had to go to a cross. And do you know what they rammed on his head as he was on the cross? They rammed thorns on his head. Because as Jesus died on the cross, the curse and the thorns of my rejection was placed on him. Jesus on the cross withered and died. He was choked by the thorns so that he could break your heart and so that he could plant his word deep inside you. The differences between the soils has nothing to do with how good or bright or attentive they are. It has everything to do with whether you come to Jesus 
or whether you walk away from him. Take Peter, for example. How would you describe Peter's heart? Would you say he was the good soil? No, Peter's heart initially was very hard to the words of Jesus, and his heart was very shallow. He denied Jesus because of a little girl. And yet, what did Jesus do? He died, he rose, he put his word in Peter, and then there is Peter on Pentecost preaching the words of Jesus that had been planted deep in his heart. And what happened? 3,000 people added to the church because the words of Jesus were in people, and he bore a miraculous harvest. I wondered this morning, do you believe this? Do you believe that the words of Jesus will produce in you and in our world a miraculous harvest? Do you believe that Jesus is at work today changing people's hearts? Because he is. He is able to take the hardest heart, the thorniest heart, the most shallow heart, and he is able to change it And he is able to produce a miraculous harvest because that is what he is. He is the sower. As we finish, I love the story of a minister in a wee place called Blantyre in Scotland in the 1800s. And at the the end of a year of ministry, he wrote in his diary uh, some very depressing words. He wrote this. He said, a very unfruitful year, only one conversion, young David Livingston. And today, in sub-Saharan Africa, there are tens of millions of Christians who have come under the sound of the gospel and who belong in churches that were founded by David Livingston. One man in one little tiny place sowed a seed, the words of Jesus, and God reaped a miraculous harvest. God is doing miraculous things in hearts and lives of people all around the world and of people on our doorstep today. And so this morning, will you trust in the words of Jesus to build the kingdom and to reap a miraculous harvest? As the band come forward, we're going to continue in worship. But let's pray in response to what we've heard before we sing. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the king. And Lord, we thank you that your words establish the kingdom. Lord, we pray that you would help us to build the kingdom as we share your words with the people around us. Lord, we thank you that your words always achieve their purpose. We thank you that you spoke the way you did because you knew you had to go to Calvary and pay in death and blood for our sin. And Lord, we thank you that your words are powerful and that they can produce a miraculous harvest. We thank you, Lord, for the miracle that you've done in our lives, and we pray, Lord, that we would reap the harvest as we sow your words. And we pray it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.